0: Oh, my hope is that everybody made it through the drought. That's about as bad as it gets here. Well, not in terms of your own mind, but external factors. <laughs> you know, it's, it's beautiful to see the practice rise to circumstances. It really is. And I just want to give each of you credit. Uh, Because the mind can turn so easily uh, in those moments of lack of comfort. And uh, I didn't see any of that with any of us. And we had no idea how long the water was going to be off. And a true practice rises, is flexible moves with that. One day we're alive, the next day we're not. And... It's not to coaster or move or to sustain circumstances, but Buddha taught just the opposite. was not to have our freedom dependent upon circumstances at all. So I just want to appreciate how we were able to do that. Uh, Tonight, Mm -hmm. I'd like to speak about the four tasks of meditation. And I was mauling more over the title than I was the talk because I am reluctant to give tasks within a title or even within a talk because it sets us running. Our workaday mind loves a task, and there's nothing more we uh, sense of usefulness the scent of the self gets than to be accomplished and feel productive and checking off one assignment after another. Hmm? Uh, So that's not what I'm talking about tonight. Really, it's much more of a a series of learning that we go through in meditation. And uh, we're confronted by that learning through the duration of our meditation. It's rarely um, resolved. So uh, the four learnings of meditation, perhaps the four tasks of meditation. First, though, what I want to mention before I get to those specific tasks is for us to be aligned with the problem, what we're doing here. It's, uh, it sometimes amazes me that we can be on the cushion for as long as we are And have a kind of misunderstanding of the basic teaching. And certainly the main point of the Buddhist teaching was around selflessness. So unless our meditation sort of stands on that foundation of selflessness, we'll find that our meditation follows the assumption of self. And very easily we can find what we're doing is adding kind of certain capabilities, certain qualities to us that we feel very good about. And we can rest um, with that uh, ease of knowing that we are moving and progressing and self-improving. But it isn't really the Buddha's way. What we're asked here is to stand on a much shakier ground. In fact, it's no ground at all. It's the, and I don't say, it's not the concept, it's the certainty of selflessness. We stand on the certainty of selflessness. Now, there are different ways to describe it. My current favorite way to describe selflessness is in terms of a reflective arch, so that when we have an experienced consciousness, uh, arches back around to meet itself uh, and with, uh, with a kind of um, a summation of what just occurred or what might occur. It takes stock of what we're doing. That's the circling, that's the arching around producing a kind of self-consciousness of self and within that that arc within that reaching back that reflective coming back on top of itself enters virtually our whole history our story our story is established in an instant, through whatever it is that we are attending to in that moment, because we have a story about virtually everything in our life. And, of course, part of that story is our capability in being able to handle or work with a particular situation as it occurs. And this story that fills this arch, this, this curling back on itself, uh, is what meditation is attempting to address. And yet how many of our meditations have sort of the assumption of that curling back on itself as a given? The commentator, the censor, the judger, that part of ourself that we don't and cannot shake. And that is seen as a kind of the abiding appraisal Of how the practice is going. It's not frequently questioned if the foundation of our practice is on self, because that's the self that the foundation doesn't question. But if our foundation is on selflessness, then it's there that our attention goes, because it's there that we're firming up reality to have meaning in relationship to me. It's interesting how that curling back, that reflective arch, can produce a whole sense of mastery. It's not uncommon for people in interviews to talk about interfacing with their need to control. I mean, if we haven't seen that, how pervasive our need to control is. Well, it comes from this arching back around. That arching back around makes us the monarch of experience. It sets the intention and tone for us to be able to manipulate experience through the powerful outreach of its surveillance. And we then establish our life purpose and meaning through that empowerment that we give that arching back around. We're in control. It's interesting if we're ever willing to examine what it is that we control, let alone who it is that's controlling, but just the what. I mean, are you controlling your senses in this moment? Do you have any idea what I'm going to say? Are you controlling what you see? What you hear? What you think? If you're not controlling the senses or able to control, where does your control lie? Where is the assumption of control if the senses are completely out of control? Yet somehow we remain certain of our influence upon life. Let me just poke. If you haven't noticed, I'm a poking teacher. Better to know that before you come to other retreats that I do. (laughs) When your mind loses its attention into thought, was that your wish? Was that your influence? Now look at this, for instance. When your mind comes out of thinking, was that your influence? Or do you know that happened after the fact that it happened? You're not even, and I'm not even, we're not even, in control of the basic form of how our practice evolves. I find that interesting. I hope you do. Because then where are you in all of this? The fact is you're nowhere. This is not a process for your evaluation. You're a thought in this. And we each know from our practice how important a thought is. So the four tasks of meditation, let's go slowly into these. <clears throat> the first task I call bearing our attention. Bearing our attention. <laughs> Instead of bear attention. And it's a task that is really at the heart of simplification. When the mind thinks it's in control, it rushes in with an awful lot of overlay on our experience, full of opinions, full of treachery, full because it's not owning the responsibility of having the experience it's often, as I mentioned in the last talk, blaming that experience externally or finding some way to judge it internally. And one of the hardest things I find for anyone who is practicing at any stage of practice, including the first day we ever sat, is to know the difference between the experience and its bare nature, and the near enemy of opinionation, of the idea that encases it. I'll show you how subtle it gets. It's in the most obvious form. It's bringing, having the mind go away, and knowing the difference between when the mind is going away and the experience in its most subtle it's the nature of fear and desire itself. That's an opinionation. That's not the actual fact. Because fear and desire are both extrapolations from the moment as to how I fear or desire this moment to evolve. It's an opinionation. And yet look how caught up. We are within that. It's not a small thing to begin to notice that as long as we base our practice on self, that that will be a given within our experience. And it's not until we move into the deeper realms of selflessness that we will question the assumptions of fear and desire on which the self is based. And I think we've all noticed that when we sit down, the screen of our attention is filled with the particulars of our leaning, of our wanting, of the residue, perhaps, of what has occurred in that day or what might occur. Will the water come on? Will I be able to take a shower? And it's so difficult to discern the difference between what the experience is that's passing through our attention and what we're adding on in terms of our reactivity. And if we get too remote, if we get too distant, if we get too detached from that experience because we're afraid of it, which is what detachment is, then it gets dry and our heart feels like a prune. And we know that there's something quite amiss if it's desert-like. And that a single experience that's on the screen of our psyche in any moment, if it's not made conscious, can confiscate our whole attention and contaminate the whole. And it becomes so important for us to pick up the subtlety of the display upon that screen of the moment. And to more and more include it, how do we do that? Not by adding anything. That's what the self does to reinforce it. It fights back. It takes a defensive posture. But selflessness, if our practice is based upon that, moves into a deeper level of relaxation Because within that deeper, intoned, relaxed, relaxation, more can be seen. It's within the tension that there is the struggle. And we learn, we learn how to pick up the subtlety of the unconscious, not through our striving, not through our tension that awareness responds in just the opposite, through the opening, through the release of tension. It's not as if we have to build upon awareness. We have to quit confiscating and broaden it out through our relaxation so that it can see the very qualities of the unconscious that are causing it to be tense. If there is tension, there's something on the layer, the film, of our, of the moment that is not being seen. Remembering that meditation is to make the unconscious conscious. Now, in walking meditation, and I give you this as a challenge, you might want to try walking through your mind just put whatever's coming out right in front of your path and don't let it deter you one bit. So whatever the mind is doing, the boredom, the lack of excitement, the whatever it, however it's forming the reality, just walk through it. It's a wonderful opportunity to walk through the mist of the unconscious. And it's so important that we don't move a cell towards its agreed presence so that we are siding with it, in other words. So we're not moving. The body is very important in the meditation. And we don't slump shoulder. We stand up. We walk right through it, head square, shoulder square, right through whatever it is that the mind might be projecting in that moment. And there comes a growing sense within us of confidence, of... I'm just not going to project out here. It's, It's not a refusal as avoidance. It's a refusal because we've seen the untruth of our history, the untruth of the projection in which we encase the world. And there comes as we begin to make more and more of the unconscious conscious, our resolution of heart, but just a refusal, no more history, no more justification, no more analysis of this. None. Now that confidence moves us into the second task of Meditation. Because it is from that confidence. Notice as we go through there that each task builds upon itself. So the first one, there was nothing that was asked from you except simplicity and intentionality. In this particular task, which is the task of confidence, I call it, We need your patience because we are really up against the emotional uh, assumptions on which we have based our life. This is where the Buddha, as the statue in Behind Me points, at one moment is so um, caught slips a little within uh, the persuasive quality of the mind that he reaches down uh, over his knee to confirm his place on the earth, to make a statement, an absolute statement, a statement that cannot be, has no equivocation. This is where I am. Because the doubt that was surfacing was the doubt that he shouldn't be there at all. As if there was any other place he could be except the place we all are. For let us be certain that there is no other thought we could be having except the thought that's manifesting. There is no other reality that could be except the reality that is. And for us to land on that reality, to find our residence within that reality so that doubt no longer plagues our practice, no longer has us turning our head and wondering whether we have the capability or whether we should be here. Should I be here? Should I be doing this? I stand here in confidence, just as the Buddha touches the earth. And the more we give our practice away to time, listen carefully, in any form that time may take, if we are practicing to cultivate, if we are practicing under the assumption of reincarnations, then our doubt will flourish because it will never be ready. Readiness is already here because we are It is the mind in its doubt that is never ready, that needs more to cultivate, that needs another hundred thousand incarnations. And it is that that we step out of when we touch the earth. I see no greater threat to proclaiming our truth, our awakening, than our doubt, because it is so prevalent in this culture. And we have bought into a framing of the Dharma that may, in some cases, reinforce that unreadiness. I call each of us out Right now, we are here, and by that fact, we are ready. And this confidence comes with such assurance. just feeling our feet on the floor of the earth. The doubt can't sustain, it can't grow, it can't root, it can't take life form. I have seen people, sometimes teachers, move with doubt rather than the truth. Somebody will say they had an insight into selflessness or something, and then in a sometimes friendly banter, the teacher says, are you sure you saw that? And suddenly the doubt comes in to the truth of that moment. And we move back, we hesitate. When we hesitate, the curling, the reflective arch of our consciousness comes back in. And our history comes back in there. Within the confidence, it can find no way to curl back. No way to strengthen. Doubt says we are never ready and we need more time, more to cultivate, more to do. And we cannot put an end to that, not mentally. All we do is delay forever. It seems we believe that the assurance that we don't feel is after maybe a three-month course or maybe ten more years on the cushion. Then, then, we say to ourselves, and yet there is so much history here of us having sat for so long. I ask you, is there still a then in your practice? Standing up to doubt with the confidence of readiness means that we frame and reference the whole moment so that doubt is an unconscious, unnoticed component of our psyche when we sit down. We look at the pain of the residue of believing in the doubt we don't deny that, and that carries a lot of assumption about our inadequacy and all of the history of all that. Let me look at that. We look at that in the moment, and it too can't form. It too can't convince. Not in the moment. Only from the story can our history convince. Step out of the story, and it has no convincing quality. And so we move into the third task of meditation. And what this brings forth out of us is both resolution and compassion, is tenderness, is tenderness. Because objectivity without tenderness has very little point. And that is seeing the harmlessness of all experience. That all experience is induced from the fear of the mind. It doesn't inherently hold any fear. It doesn't inherently hold anything. And it's from the confidence of knowing our place in things that we can hold steady to What we perceive and project as harmful. Because it's from the sense that our inward life could potentially threaten that we form the boundaries for our security. We encase ourselves within the assumptions of what experience can do and will do if we ever allow it to rub too closely. And yet that very, we in, we induced the quality of fear into the experience. It's the mental overlay. And as we quiet, we begin to see we're doing this. We're not just doing it to our inward life. We're doing it to virtually everything. And what happens if I'm just quiet and still? What happens if I understand that because I have searched the reaches of my psyche and I am not going to go with the unconscious. I am going to see the unconscious and I see my unconsciousness wanting to project upon. I see the fear and I am accountable to that. And I no longer let it coat like having red glasses would coat the perception of life. I no longer let that fear, the unconscious expression of it, coat the experience at hand. I have established that confidence. And I am willing to face whatever experience arises. And may I say, that life is only an experience. From day we are born to the day we die, it has and can never be other than just a series of experiences. And if we're willing to face experience, that is all it can offer. And that is all it can do. So experience no longer terrorizes. No longer. We learn non clinging by learning non fearing. No defense needed because there's nothing to defend ourselves against. No fear no boundary, no boundary, no self. So the alchemy of our practice works towards bringing everything back into itself. And what is the nature of all things? The Buddha said, All things by their very nature are transcendent, nibbana, freedom, by their very nature. From time to time, because we can invest so much into the experience, we need some way to see what is really, the truth, to ask ourselves, what holds this experience? Not what the experience is, but what surrounds it? What sees out of our eyes? What enables sight to occur? And we begin to extract awareness from being embedded within the relationship. So that it becomes what holds all experience. The fourth task is to examine the nature of self itself with simplicity, with confidence with patience and with compassion. Because by this time, experience no longer plays as something that we need to be threatened by. That we have the confidence to be able to sit and let come what may And we have the conviction that it's just life meeting itself. And although fear may arise as we approach the subject of me, with the same relaxed openness that we have approached all subjects. There is a sense already in us at this stage of our sitting that it's empty. We go inside and it's empty. It's not. There's nothing there. Dogen, the Zen master, said that's enlightenment before enlightenment. That's the truth. It is empty. But experiencing that truth and realizing that truth are two different things. And what we must do in our practice is to have the experience until it's realized. Because having the experience is not good enough. Because having the experience still harbors the safe self that's having it. And the realization Is the removal of the perspective of me having anything. Then there's just the play. Just the play. Life seeing itself. Awareness. Awareness. So how do we apply meditation to work in alignment with its intended purpose? By working from day one, not to reinforce the strategies of self, but to ask questions about those strategies rather than from them. Not how do I get over something but looking into, the way through is into, those very reactions. And to understand that the play of pain is an indication of where the unconscious still is the monarch, the ruler, which is why the Buddha reinforced again and again. He didn't just point to the first noble truth and say, life holds struggle and conflict. He pointed us there because that's where the unconscious lies. That's what we need to see in order to open it up to the play of life. So, to woo, be willing to move into the unseen pain with the confidence, with the right orientation, with the right posture, with the right wise intention to make the unconscious conscious. And then suddenly, We are no longer in the realm of reaction, boundary setting, conditionality. We fall into the realm of the heart, into gladdened appreciation. into stillness, into a deep abiding caring, into vitality and wakefulness. And though we see it as play, Our heart still comes out in compassion. And that's where the relative meets the absolute. And there we sit. Nothing else can form. Nothing else threatens. May all beings see that moment and dwell therein. Thank you. Can we sit for a moment or two? Thank you for listening.